myself and you'll please guide me as far as the um, when you want me to share the screen and when you want me to uh, to unshare the screen. Perfect. Okay, so I'm muting and thank you very much. Perfect. All right. Good evening, everyone. First of all, uh, uh, I want to thank Rabbi Bilit for uh, giving me the opportunity to be able to share Torah with such a wonderful group of people. And I want to thank Jeff Benko as well, who I've been in email contact with. And, and I have to say how exciting it is to hear some of the names. I see some of the familiar faces here on the screen, people from different stages of my life. Some of you from Baltimore, but uh, the fish, the Fishwikers, the Sean Runs, back from uh, back from the Fairlawn days as well. So it's really quite beautiful. And the truth is, it's really part of the beauty of what Torah is. That at the end of the day, Torah is a great unifier. You know, geography changes, residences changes, career change. But at the end of the day, Torah is the one constant. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one constant. Mitzvahs are the one constant. And... It's a beautiful thing because when I see this screen and when I see so many people from my past and from my present, um, it's really very special. And it, the, the common theme amongst all of these relationships is that they were built around Torah and Amir Hashem, I hope that they continue to flourish around Torah as well. So it's an incredible schuss to be with you. Although although I'm with you, I, I, I'm sure the weather by you is much nicer than the weather by us. We are, Amir Hashem, expecting snow this evening. You all just look a lot warmer. But okay, if I can't be with you physically, at least I have the great schuss to be with you spiritually. So I'd like to focus a little bit on a fascinating topic. A topic that the truth has captivated my imagination a number of years ago. I think for those of us who grew up either in the yeshiva system or the day school system, we pretty much all have the same exact memory of Tu Bishvat. What would happen on Tu Bishvat? So you'd come to school, again, whatever really kind of school you went to, a day school, a yeshiva, a chede, whatever you went to, Tubishvat was often the same exact experience. You'd show up, you'd get a paper bag, you'd open up the paper bag, and there was fruit, or at least they told you that what was inside of the bag was fruit. And then you would take it out, and they would tell you, oh, this is incredible, this is the Shiva Saminim, all the different seven species with which, with which Eretz Yisrael is blessed. And you would think to yourself, although you wouldn't articulate it, really, this, this is the totality of the blessing that God has conferred upon the land of Israel. This is it. This is it. A boxer. Remember the boxer? The boxer. Every dentist loves boxer. Because I could only imagine that after two bishvat, there was definitely a spike in emergency dental visits. Right? Doesn't look like it's really edible. It's not exactly clear whether one is supposed to consume it, not consume it. And kind of everything else follows along that mark. So we'd have two bishvat. You'd have the dried fruit. And somehow we knew that this day was unique, this day was special. But I think for many of us, and I'm really speaking to myself here, growing up without really an appreciation for Tu B'Shvat, recognizing that this day, the 15th of Shvat, was something fundamentally different than any other day, but not exactly being able to figure out where, where, wherein lies the unique identity of the day. So the Shulchan Aruch, and again, I, 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 as Rabbi Billet mentioned, there is a source sheet, and I think Rabbi Billet will just go back and forth, but the truth is, whether you want to follow on the source sheet or just Balpa, I'm going to be doing the sources inside and outside as well. So wherever you want to follow, you'll be able to follow in this year. So the Shulchan Aruch, in number one, writes a very simple halacha. Shulchan Aruch writes, Nagu Shalolipal Al Pneyem Betu Bishvat. The halacha is, we don't say Tachnun. We don't say Tachnun. 
So we know, again, that one of the tefillos we recite immediately after Shmona Esri, something called Nefilas Apayim, where literally we fall on our arm. Over the course of the prayer experience, we assume multiple different postures. We sit, we stand, we prostrate. Now, we don't fully prostrate because there is no prostration outside of the base Hamid. Thus, perhaps the exception to this is an interesting custom that developed by Yom Kippur or by Rosh Hashanah, but in general, we don't prostrate ourselves outside of the Beis HaMikdash. But we do recite Tachlamin, whereby we put our head on our arm. And that is a supplicatory prayer in which we beseech HaKadosh Baruch Hu for His mercy. The Shulchan Aruch says that on Tu Bishvat, we don't say Tachlamin. Now, why is this important? Because Tachlamin is omitted on any day where there is a celebratory overtone. So any day which has an enhanced or amplified dynamic of simcha, tachanun is omitted. So from the beginning, the halacha is telling me that this day of Tu Bishvat is uniquely different than any other day. It's not a regular weekday. As much as there's no Isra Malacha, as much as there's no prohibition to go out and perform work, it's not like a Shabbos, it's not like a Yom Tiv, but it is unique. We don't recite Tachanun. And again, the Mishnah comments in number two, B'tu Bishvat, Because the Mishnah says, what's so unique about Tu Bishvat? It is the new year for trees and Ashkenazim. We Ashkenazim, we have the custom to eat many different types of fruit. Okay, so let's pause here for just a moment. If we go back to the Mishnah and we ask ourselves, you know, what is the original significance of Tu Bishvat? So the Mishnah, Mesech HaShoshan, the opening Mishnah already tells us this. The Mishnah, which many of us are familiar with, tells us that there are four different New Years throughout the year. Of course, we're most familiar with the Rosh Hashanah, what we colloquially call Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei. What the Mishnah calls the Rosh Hashanah for Shonim, the New Year for years. For, it's the calendrical New Year. But the Mishnah, excuse me, but the Mishnah quotes that there are a variety of different New Years. And the Mishnah says, actually looking at the last line in number three, on the first of Shvat is the Rosh Hashanah, the New Year for Trees. So we'll come back to this dispute in just a little bit, but a fascinating dispute regarding the date, ultimately, of Tu Bishvat. You have Beishamai saying, Tu Bishvat, the Rosh Hashanah, the New Year for Trees, is on the first of Shvat. Beis Hillel saying the New Year for Trees is on the 15th of Shvat. Now, understand, what does this mean when we speak about a new year for trees? What's the ramification of a new year for trees? So without getting into all of the technical details, let's kind of look at this from a panoramic perspective. We know, again, that we have a concept or halachas of trumas and maestros, that we have an obligation to separate tithes. Different tithes go to different people. And remember, the tithing cycle is based on the seven-year Shemitah cycle, which means that almost every year of the seven-year cycle, there are different tithes that are in effect. Well, there's a halacha. The halacha is that you could only separate out tithe from the cohort of crop that grew in one particular year. So, for example, whenever the year begins and ends, beginning and end, anything that grew over the course of that year is tithed from that crop that all grew at the same time. But, for example... You cannot tithe crop that grew in year two from, let's say, crops which grew in year one. Again, we're not going to spend the rest of this year on the technicalities of this, but it's just important to frame it. Therefore, I need to know when the year begins and when the year ends for fruit trees. 
So if I know that I can only separate out trumas and maestros from that year's crop. So remember again, many different, so truma goes to the coin, maestro goes to the levy. There's an additional portion that the levy goes ahead and separates out for the Kohen. There is Meiser Ani, which is a tithe given to the poor. There is Meiser Shini, which is yours to enjoy, but you must enjoy it in Jerusalem. So I have to know when the beginning and end of the year determines the crop cohort. So therefore, when the Mishnah says that according to Beis Hillel, let's say, Tubishat, the 15th of Shvat, is the new year for trees, what that means is as follows, right? It's Tubishvat this Thursday, which means anything that grew between Tu Bishvat of last year, Tu Bishvat 5780, and Tu 5781 is part of one crop. Part of one crop, and therefore, therefore one has to tithe from that grouping. So I'm sure you are riveted by these details, right? Which is interesting. Certainly in an agricultural society, these were, these were necessary facts to know. But it still leaves us with a fundamental unanswered question, which is, I understand the importance of Tu Bishvat. I understand the halachic significance of Tu Bishvat. I understand the agrarian nature of Tu Bishvat. But what I don't understand is, why is it a yomtiv? Wherein lies the celebratory nature of this particular day? And before I answer that question, or before we kind of delve into the answer, I want to just amplify the question a bit more. If you take a look at number five, so the Shulchan Aruch says something absolutely amazing. The Shulchan Aruch writes, The Shulchan Aruch over here is referring to a series of fast days. Let's say a community wanted to go ahead and declare a series of fast days, a Monday, Thursday, Monday series of fast days, either because of some type of communal calamity or even for the example in Eretz Yisrael, because let's say there's not enough rain. So what's Talacha? And let's say again on either that Monday, Thursday, Monday, it's Tu Habah. We push off the communal fast day. Push off the communal fast day to the next week. So understand, dear friends, this is a dramatic halacha because when a community, when a community declares a public fast day, that is a very serious thing. You know, Masechus Tainus is dedicated to this concept of how we treat public fast days and there's a lot of severity associated to them. We close down businesses for certain fast days. We go ahead and... I'm sorry. We go ahead and we. I apologize, Rabbi Silver. I have to unmute you again. No problem. I unmuted. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. So we go ahead when there when there is a communal fast day. So we are exceptionally careful with how we conduct ourselves. And at the end of the day, it's not it's not a Zoom shear without some technical difficulties. This is it's part and parcel of the Zoom shear. So. When you have a public fast day, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's a very severe and significant thing. So the Shulchan Aruch is saying, but if Tu Bishvat happens to fall in the, during the duration, during the course of the public fast days, we push off the fast day so as not to interfere with Tu Bishvat, which means when there is a clash between Tu Bishvat and between a public fast day, so ultimately again, Tu Bishvat wins. Tu Bishvat wins. So that is incredibly dramatic because it tells us 
about the. Silver, you have to unmute yourself. I just muted everybody. I didn't do oh. it at the beginning. I apologize. Okay. Please unmute yourself and go back about thirty seconds. No problem. Okay. So thank you. So as I was saying, in, so as I was saying, in the. the All right, Rabbi Billet, I'm sorry, it's not letting me unmute. Okay. Okay, good, hear me now? Okay, so as I, as I was saying, so the fact that the Shulchan Aruch says that if there is a clash between a public fast day, between a public fast day, and ultimately Tu B'Shvat, Tu B'Shvat wins, Despite the fact that in general public fast days are treated with incredible severity and to public fast days are considered to be incredibly important facets of communal observance. And again, I, I don't know which part I was muted out for, but even technically speaking on a public fast day, we close down places of business. We suspend commerce. That's how significant public fast days are. Yet, when there is a conflict between the public fast day and Tu B'Shvat, ultimately Tu B'Shvat wins. So once again, we come back to our original question, which is, what is the Yom Tov identity of this day? What exactly is so important about Tu B'Shvat? What is so significant about Tu B'Shvat? And wherein lies the Yom Tov identity of this day? So I want to share with you, essentially, two different approaches to this. The first approach begins in number 10. I'm sorry, it's actually not supposed to be number 10. Sorry about that. The numbering got a little messed up. My apologies for that. But we'll just go with the numbering as it is on the sheet. I'm sorry. Number 10, which is in the Sefer Zecher David. So this Sefer was written by Rav David of Modena. Rav David of Modena lived in Italy in the mid-1400s. And what Rav David of Modena essentially did was he compiled almost like an encyclopedia on Jewish topics. It's about seven volumes. And he goes through, again, in alphabetical order, just different topics in Judaism. So he has a section, he has a section about Tu B'Shvat. So in his section on Tu B'Shvat, he writes as follows. The rabbi sanctified this day of Tu B'Shvat that they called the, the New Year for Trees. So the first thing that the Zecher David does is he makes an interesting observation. Now, now what I want to point out is as follows. This observation already precedes him. And if you noticed, again, when we read the Mishnah in number three, you'll notice again that the verbiage changes. When the Mishnah speaks about the earlier New Year's, it's referred to ultimately again in the plural. Rosh Hashanah Limelachim, a new year for kings, a new year for Regalim. So one would have expected the same level of textual symmetry. Shanim, Shmitin, Yovlos, it's all plural. So one would have expected, therefore, that the Mishnah would have said that on either the first of Shvat or the 15th of Shvat is Rosh Hashanah Le'ilanos, is the new year for trees. But it doesn't say the new year for trees. Instead, it just says the new year for the tree. Le'ilan, for the tree. So the Zecher David says something absolutely amazing. He says, La'ashmo'inon, this is the underlying part in source number 10. La'ashmo'inon, shu rashashona l'chol ish Yisrael. It is to teach us an incredible, powerful, metaphorical message, which is the Elon. See, when the Mishnah says rashashona le'ilan, it's rashashona for the tree. Who's the tree? The Zecher David posits the tree is a reference to man. 
is a reference to man. To every single Jewish person. For a person is compared to a tree. So the Pasuk to which the Zecher David refers to is the Pasuk in number 11. The Torah says, actually a totally different context, right? The Torah is speaking about the halachos of warfare. And we know that when you go out to war, the Torah does not allow for what they would call today a scorched earth policy. You can't go right. This is a, it's, a, it's an old. It's 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 one of the oldest military tactics. Scorched earth policy. When you go into a foreign land, you're invading someone else. You're repelling an invading army. Burn down everything. Deprive the enemy of natural resources. We don't believe the Jewish army doesn't operate with a scorched earth policy. There's a whole variety of different reasons that Ramban explains because a scorched earth policy already represents a certain lack of belief that you're actually going to win the war. Because if you really believed you were going to win the war, why would you want to destroy the very resources from which you will be able to benefit from? Therefore, again, no... Okay, but if you take a look at number 11, so the Torah says, So the Torah says, if you're going to lay a siege to a city, and you're laying a siege for a prolonged amount of time, so the Shulchan Aruch says, do not go ahead and chop down the trees unnecessarily. Of course, if strategically you need to chop down the trees, you could chop down the trees. But just wanton destruction is not permitted. Why, says the, says the Torah? Now, interestingly enough, there's a dispute amongst the commentaries exactly how to read this phrase. So most understand it to be a rhetorical question. Is the tree, right, literally, is the tree a combatant? Is the tree a person? Is the tree a person who's going to war with you? Of course not. So leave the tree alone. There's no need to go ahead and unnecessarily destroy the tree. So what, Ze- what the Sefer Zechotor, David of Modina, is doing, and the truth is, it is really attributed to sources even earlier than him, he reads that phrase a little bit differently. Not as an interrogative, or of course, in the context of the Pasuk, it's a rhetorical question. Kia Oda Meitzasoda is a person a tree, but Rabbi David of Modina understands this more on a, on a metaphorical level to be a statement. Man is like the tree. Man is like a tree. Now the truth is, this tree-man comparison, we find many different places in Chazal. Right? The notion of the tree having roots. Right? So to man has roots. The tree having branches, man extends himself, having a mishpacha, branches as well. Interestingly enough, in, in Hasidic literature, the Svarim write that the major difference is the tree, its roots grow into the ground. Man's roots extend into the celestial sphere. But in any event, so therefore, Abdavid Modina kind of drops this incredible concept, which is that there is a deeper meaning to Tubishvat. That when the Mishnah says that Be'echad Bishvat or Be'tubishvat, whichever, the first Bishvat, 15th Bishvat, is Rosh Hashanah Le'ilon. It doesn't just simply mean an agricultural date. Yes, of course, it does mean an agricultural date. Yes, as we pointed out before, you have to set the calendar for tithing purposes. But there is a deeper metaphoric message as well that the Tu Bishvat is the new year, Lo'ilon, for the tree. And who is the tree? Kia Adam Eitzasada. Man, what a dramatic idea. So suddenly again, that day that we always just marked with a bag, a paper bag filled with what people told us was fruit, 
now suddenly again in the eyes of Chazal, is an actual Rosh Hashanah. It's a brand new year, not just for the trees, not just for tithing purposes. It's a brand new year for me. It's a brand new year for you. But the question, of course, is what does this mean? And first of all, another question you're already thinking about, which is, but we already have a Rosh Hashanah. We, we, are, we already have that. We have a Rosh Hashanah on the first of Tishrei, a very dramatic Rosh Hashanah, a month of Elul that precedes it. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. So what does this mean now that man has a second Rosh Hashanah? So if you take a look at number nine, I want to share with you what I think is, the only way I could describe it is, is as a riveting, riveting, overwhelming piece. This is from the Sefer B'nai Yisachar, which was written by Ratzvi Elimelech Shapira of Dinov, who was born in 1785, who was one of the great Hasidic masters. So to appreciate this piece, we, we need to do a little bit of a little bit of background. So we're going to go a little bit out of order, even more out of order than my sources already are. If you take a look at number 10, we're going to jump back and forth a little bit. Number 10 is a very well-known Gemara in Mesecha Shabbos, a Gemara that I'm sure you're all familiar with. If you haven't seen it inside, you've absolutely heard the story. And it's the story of the three converts who come before Hillel and Shammai. So we're not going to do this entire excuse me, this entire Gemara inside, but rather again, I'm going to tell you these three parts outside, and then we're going to tie it back. So the Gemara tells us, the Gemara in Shabbos, Daf Lamed Aleph, on page 31a, tells a story. Story is, individual number one, so right, candidate for conversion number one, shows up in front of Shammai, and he says to Shammai, simple question, Kama Toros Yeshlochem, how many Torahs do you have? How many Torahs? To which Shammai says, we have two Torahs, we have a written law, we have an oral tradition. So what happens? So the candidate for conversion says, listen, sign me up for the written law, but I, I don't subscribe to the oral tradition. Sorry, sorry, I'll take Torah Shedichsav, I'll take the Chumash, Chamisha Chumash Torah, but I'm not signing up for any of this oral tradition for the rabbinic stuff, not, not for me. So what happens? And then, and then the man has the chutzpah to say to Shammai, Geiraini amnash landini Torah Shedichsav. Convert me on the condition that all I'm going to learn is Torah Shavichsav, is the written law. So Shammai did not take very kindly to this. And what happens? Shammai yelled at him and the guy and the guy ran away. Gemara then goes on. This individual now finds his way to Hillel. Says to Hillel. So he says, same thing to Hillel. How many Torahs? Two Torahs. Torah Shavichsav, Torah Shavichsav. I'll take the written law, not interested in the oral tradition. To which Hillel says, okay. You know what? Why don't we start like this? Before we get into written law, oral law, how about we just learn Aleph? How about we just learn Aleph Bays? So he t- starts teaching him Aleph Bays, Gimel Dalid. The next day, so day number one, he learns Aleph Bays, Gimel Dalid. The next day, the, the Ger, the prospective convert shows up, and Hillel tells him, Oh, you know what? Today we're learning Dalid, Gimel Bays, Aleph. I, the Ger says, the individual says, but yesterday you told me it was Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalit. Today you're telling me it's Dalit, Gimel, Beis, Aleph. What's going on? So he said, exactly. The same way you trusted me to tell you that the proper order is Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalit, you have to trust me that in order to be a Jew, you have to accept the Torah Shavich the written law, as well as the oral tradition. Good. Guy accepted. He converted. Story number two. Story number two. Individual comes to Shammai and says, Shammai, I want to convert, but teach me the entire Torah while I am standing on one leg. Okay? Shammai doesn't take too kindly to this. And the Gemara says, 
Dachfel ba'amasa binyan. Shammai chased the Moi with a two by four. Literally chased, chased the man away with a two by four. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. The guy comes to Hillel, and Hillel says, Okay, you want to learn the entire Torah on one leg? Whatever you don't want done to you, don't do to someone else. Beautiful. Guy converts. Story number three. A Gentile is listening in in the base medrash. And he hears the Jews are discussing the incredible clothing of the Kohen Gadol. Of the Kohen Gadol. So the guy shows up. He tells Shammai, listen, here's the deal. I want to convert, but on the condition that I can be the high priest. Now, of course, again, that's, that's impossible. I also want to be the high priest, but I'm not a Kohen. I'm not from Shevet Levi. So nothing I could do. It doesn't make a difference how much Torah I learn, how many mitzvahs I do, how much stuck I give. I can't be the high priest. So this, this, so this individual who's a Gentile right now comes to Shammai, convert me on the condition that I become the high priest. So what happens? Shammai once again loses his, 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 not loses his temper, but says, you're not serious, get out of here. So once again, he chases him away, ultimately again with the two by four. He ultimately comes to Hillel, and once again, and once again, Hillel begins to teach him Torah. And Hillel teaches him the psukim that say, no one is allowed to come into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest on Yom Kippur. And the Ger, the convert asked him, who does that refer to? And Hill said, it refers to everyone, even King David, even David HaMelech. So the convert says, oh, okay. So if King David can't enter into the Holy of Holies, certainly I can't enter into the Holy of Holies as well. And he accepts the fact that he's not going to become a convert. And ultimately, again, he, I'm sorry, he accepts that he's not going to become the high priest. And he converts and accepts his particular station within the Jewish people. He's going to be great, he can be a tzaddik, he can be a gadladar, leader of the generation, but he just can't be the high priest. Interestingly enough, how does the Gemara end? And this is paragraph Dalid in, in this particular source, in source number 10. So it's interesting, these three guys, now remember, now these three individuals are all Jewish, they all converted. They all converted. So somehow, somewhere through a confluence of events, they all ended up meeting each other. Amru and they said, And they said something amazing. They said, you know, the the Kaptenuso, which literally means like the rigidity, the rigidity of Shammai sought to remove us from this world. But the humility of Hillel brought us close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the rigidity of Shammai would have prevented us from partaking of this beautiful treasure called Yiddishkeit, called Judaism, but the humility of Hillel allowed us to come close. Okay, so I'm sure again you're familiar with that story. Now look what the Bnei Yisachar does with this story. It, it, it is nothing short of, of, of mind-blowingly amazing. So the Bnei Yisachar, so we're not going to read this whole thing, but if you notice in number 9 he begins, so remember again, Shammai has the same approach. The first guy he just yells at, the next two he chases away with a two by four. So if you skip down a little bit, if you skip down a little bit, right after you see where it says, Vayikra yutes yudches in brackets. Vihine. So look, we're going to read these words. They might not make sense at first, but then we're going to plug them back into what the Rebbe is saying. You know, when there's a new moon, when there's a new moon, there's barely anything visible. And sometimes, literally, there's nothing visible. 
umusefes b'madrega yom achar yom, ad shetamot amilua betesvav. And what happens day after day? So remember, the beginning of the month, the moon is almost invisible. And then day after day, the moon grows a bit more, a bit more, a bit more, until when you get to the 15th of the month, the middle of the month, the 15th, the moon is full. The moon is full. It's luminescent. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. This idea of the moon, and by the way, this is very much related. We just had this in Parshas Bo, where the Torah spoke about the first national mitzvah we are given. The lunar calendar. The first mitzvah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us is a mitzvah that has to do with the moon. Why, says the Bani Yisachar? Because the moon is almost like the, the physical manifestation or physical embodiment of the nature of the human condition. How so? Because most of us don't begin shining bright. Most of us don't begin with luminescent brilliance. Some of us even begin barely visible. Some of us emit absolutely no light. But if I work on myself a little bit more day after day after day, then suddenly again I begin to radiate something magnificent, something beautiful. He goes on, he says, Until ultimately again, over time, I take the potential, the energy that resides inside of my soul, and I actualize it and turning into something dynamic. Then he writes, Alkane, I'm skipping just two lines. Alkane Hurosh Hashana Li'ilanos. Therefore, Tubishvat is the new year for trees. Kia Adam eats Hasada. For man is a tree of the field. So, okay, let's pause here for just a moment and let's talk about this. Because before we even know what the words of the Rebbe are, we know that the Rebbe is doing something dramatic. So let's take a step back. And let's take a look at, the, let's, let's talk about the Gemara. We don't have to look at it. We're going to talk about the Gemara for just a moment. So if, if you were to think about, which I'm sure you're thinking about now, what is the Machlokas between Beishamai and Beishelah? Right? Remember, take a step back for just a moment. So those of you who learn Gemara have a familiarity with Gemara. Oh, the truth is, even if you don't learn Gemara, you know that in general, Jewish learning always is comprised of debate. There's debate. There's always debate. There's different opinions. I don't say two opinions, but there's usually more than two opinions. And whenever you want to try to reach a resolution, you have to ask yourself one simple question. What is at the core of the dispute? The truth is, this in general is an important, you sold an important concept in relationship dynamics because we all have disputes, whether it's dispute in a marriage, whether it's dispute with children, whether it's dispute with friends, we all have our disputes. And if you want to resolve those disputes, you have to drill down to what is at the core of the dispute. You know, you could be locked in an argument with someone for years, for decades, because you never really drill down. What are we arguing about? What is, what is the point of contention? So here you have a Gemara that records two dramatically different approaches. The approach of Hillel and the approach of Shammai. But what do they really argue about? What, in other words, what, what accounts for their difference in approach, right? The same people came, the same three candidates for conversion came to Shammai and then to Hillel. And by the way, the three guys said the same exact thing to Shammai and then to Hillel. Yet Shammai reacted one way and Hillel reacted a different way. 
So how do you account for those differences? And what the B'nai Yisachar is suggesting is something absolutely amazing. You know what their machlokes was? Their machlokes, their dispute, was how do you look at people? How do you look at people? You see, in Shammai's worldview, how do you look at people? As they are. As they are. The way you present, that's ultimately, again, the way I'm going to forge, or I should say to form my opinions about you. So therefore, a guy comes up to Shammai, listen, listen, I'm ready to convert, but listen, Rabbi, I'm going to take the written law, I'm not interested in the oral tradition. I'll take what God says, not interested in what the rabbis have to say. So Shammai says, get out of here. Get out of here. You're not serious. You're not committed. So get out of here. Or, or again, second guy comes along and the second guy says, teach me all of Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Get out of here. Come on, what are you talking about? What kind of commitment is that? Judaism is an ancient, holy religion that is steeped in details and rituals and rites and you want it on one foot? Get out of here. Get out of here. What is it, a joke? Don't waste my time. Third guy comes on. I want to be the coin goggle. Shkoyach, you want to be the coin goggle. Excellent. Get in line. Everybody wants to be the coin goggle. But come on. You're not even Jewish yet. So what, what, what are you even talking about? So Shammai sees each of these individuals for what they are. And he sees them as people who lack resolve, who lack seriousness. And therefore, he dispenses with them quickly and unceremoniously. Get out. Get out. Leave me alone. I'm not wasting my time with you. Hillel, on the other hand, and this is quite amazing, doesn't see people for who they are. Hillel sees people for who they can become. Hillel sees people for who they can become. So dear friends, let's analyze this for just a little bit. If you're a Hillel, and you see this individual who shows up and he says, how many Torahs do you have? And we say two Torahs, written law, oral tradition. And the guy says, fine, fine. You know what? I'll take the written one, not the oral tradition. What does Hillel say? Hillel sees someone who's insecure. I want to commit. I want to commit. I, I, I want to join the fold. I want to be part of the Jewish people. But two Torahs, that's a lot of stuff. So there's an insecurity that's there. The individual comes along and says, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Whereas Shammai saw him as a lack of resolve, Hillel saw him as someone who has such an incredible desire to amass everything there is to amass. But he once again is afraid that maybe he lacks the utensils, the intellectual utensils, the emotional utensils, spiritual tools to be able to amass knowledge. So can you give it to me in a sound bite? And the guy who wants to be the Kohen Gadol, he's not joking around. That's a person who aspires to greatness. That's a person who wants to accomplish something incredible. So herein lies the dispute between Hillel and Shammai. Shammai sees people for who they are. So you roll up and you say, I'll take one Torah, not two Torahs. Teach me everything on one foot. I want to be the coin Gadol. Shammai says, get out of my face. I don't, I don't need to talk to you. You're not serious. You're not committed. When you really decide you want to take this seriously, come back. I'm happy to talk with you. And Hillel says, no, there's what they're saying, but there's what they also mean beneath or underneath the layers of those words. There are insecurities that make a person feel that they can't really accomplish everything they want to accomplish. There's this desire for greatness. There's fear. So Hillel says, let's peel back all of those layers because I'm not just going to simply look at you for who you are. I'm going to look at you ultimately again for who you can become. 
you know, it's amazing. We actually find this concept in this week's parasha as well. There is a beautiful idea. The great tzaddik Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin, known as the Rizhiner, he quotes the an incredible Medrash. We, we this week we read about the splitting of the Red Sea, Kriyas Yamsuf, and in Kriyas Yamsuf there's a pasuk that says Baruach Apecha Ne'er Mumayim, which we literally translate Baruach Apecha with literally again the breath, the breath of your nostrils, right? Ne'er Mumayim, the water piled up. So the the imagery, of course, is that God breathed on the Red Sea and it split. The waters piled up. So the Rishoner quotes a Medrash Plia, strange Medrash. And the Medrash writes, Baruch Apecha, Apecha doesn't mean, doesn't mean your nose, but rather Apecha means anger. Af, like Charon Af, anger. That Hashem got angry with the sea and therefore he split it. So the Rishoner says, why would Hashem get angry with the sea? So let me tell you something amazing. The Rishoner quotes the Zohar. And the Zohar writes that when Hashem created the world, He told the sea, here's the deal. You flow like you're supposed to flow. But in a few thousand years from now, there's going to be a nation who comes and stands by your banks. And when you see that nation standing by the banks of the sea, you must split. That's a condition that I am embedding in creation. And the sea says, fine, deal, deal. Fast forward, the Jews leave Egypt. The Jews are standing by the banks of the Red Sea, and the sea is not splitting. Hashem comes to the sea. He says, no, we, we had an agreement. Well, what, 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 what happened over here? Why aren't you splitting? To which the sea says, one second, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when you created me, you showed me a picture of the nation who was going to stand by my banks. You, stole, you showed me the picture, and I saw righteous men and righteous women, righteous children, such a beautiful and spiritually luminescent nation. Do you see these guys over here? Do you see these people are standing by my banks now? That's not the picture of the people you showed me. I'm not splitting for these individuals. They are not deserving. They are not righteous. Now the good part about God is you could try collaboration for a little bit if you're God, but then if collaboration fails, you could always just play the God card. So what happens? Kadosh Baruch Hu decides, okay, you're not going to split. I'll split you. Kadosh Baruch Hu split. What's happening over here? You see, the sea saw us for who we were. Kadosh Baruch Hu sees us for who we can become. What's the machlokis? What's the dispute? Be Shammai and Be Silel? Shammai says, I look at people for who they are now. You're showing up, you only want one Torah, get out of here. You want another Torah on one leg, get out of here. You want to be the Kohen Gadol, get out of here. And Hillel says, no. No, 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 no. You have to strive to see people not simply for who they are, but who they can potentially become. And now says the Bnei Yisachar something absolutely amazing. You remember again, going all the way back to the beginning, when we saw in the Mishnah Hashanah, there was a dispute between Mishnah and Beisilel. Ultimately, again, when is the Rosh Hashanah, when is the new year for trees? So you remember again, Beishamai said, Beishamai says it's on the first of Shvat, and Beis Hillel said it's on the 15th of Shvat. It's on the 15th of Shvat. So says the Venezuelans for something absolutely amazing. He says, This is the dispute. He says, Shamai said the Rosh, Hashanah, the, the Rosh Hashanah, the rebirth of man, is when? On the first of Shvat. First of Shvat, but what does the moon look like? Nothing. Nothing. Because Shammai says in life, we are judged for what we are. You are judged for who you are, for what you are, for how you present, for what you are in real time right now. Versus Hillel who holds 
that when is the Rosh Hashanah Le'ilan? When is the New Year for trees? And remember, dear friends, the tree, as we saw from the Zecher David, doesn't just refer to the agricultural trees, to the horticultural trees, but the tree is man. So Shammai says, the Rosh Hashanah for the tree for man is on the first of Shvat. It's on the first of Shvat. Because the first of Shvat, what you see is what you get. You see nothing. If you see nothing, there is nothing. We are judged based on how we present. We are judged based on who we are right now in the present. And Basilo says, no, no, no. The Rosh Hashanah for the Elam, the Rosh Hashanah for the tree is on the 15th of Shvat when the moon is full. And what happens when the moon is full? It's obviously beautiful, luminescent. But what's amazing, just a few days ago, that moon wasn't as full. And a few days before that, it was just a sliver. And a few days before that, ultimately, it wasn't even visible. Hillel says that at the end of the day, we are judged, the Rosh Hashanah Le'ilam, the new year for trees, for the tree, for man, is a judgment not based on who we are, but a judgment based on who we can become. And in fact, again, who does the halacha follow? We know. The halacha follows Beisila, right? That two bishvat, right? The Hashanah for the Yilanos, the Hashanah for new trees, or for man, ultimately, again, is on the 15th of Shvat. And I'll show you something amazing. If you take a look at number 12, and then we'll just, we'll, we'll kind of tie this together. If you go back to number 12, the Gemara Masechah, Rosh Hashanah says something so beautiful. The Gemara says, So again, the Gemara then goes on to say, Beisila says, the Rosh Hashanah, for the trees is on the 15th of Shvat. But what's unique about the 15th of Shvat? So remember again, if you're in Eretz Yisrael on Tuba Shvat, aside for the Shkedia Parachat, right? Aside for the almond tree, which does blossom amazingly enough by Tuba Shvat, you go out and it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. Like it's not like there's suddenly spring is here and everything is fine. It's still wintertime. It's still wintertime. So the Gemara is about like, what is it about the 15th of Shvat that is so unique? So the Gemara says, number 12, even though, again, there's still more winter to come, the majority of the rains have already fallen. By Tu Bishvat, even though there's more winter ahead, the majority of the rains have still fallen. And Rashi says in number 13 something absolutely amazing. Do you know what is unique about Tu B'Shvat? What's unique about Tu B'Shvat is that by the time we get to the 15th of Shvat, although there's still more winter to come and there's still more rain to come and more cold weather to come, the sap is surging in the tree. You see, when you look, go outside, Halavai, we should be Zoka, all of us, to get to Eretz Yisrael soon. You go outside by Tu B'Shvat, everything looks the same. But if you were to cut open that tree, what would you find? you would find the life-affirming and life-nourishing sap coursing through the trunk, coursing through the branches. The tree looks ordinary on the outside, but the very nectar of vitality is coursing through that tree in its entirety. And now we understand the power of Tu Bishvat. The power of Tu Bishvat, Rosh Hashanah Li'ilan, Ultimately, again, it's the new year for not just trees, but for the tree. Who is the tree? Man. I'm the tree. You're the tree. It's a Rosh Hashanah for us. What is in Rosh Hashanah? I have a Rosh Hashanah already on Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah, Tu Bishvat, the power of Tu Bishvat, 
is as nature begins to renew itself, man is given the power and opportunity for renewal as well. But just like with nature, if you go outside and you look in the natural world, you won't find anything out of the ordinary on Tugashvat. Everything still looks the same. So too, when I look in the mirror, I often feel incredibly ordinary. When I look in the mirror, I often feel just very regular. I don't feel anything different. But the tree also looks the same. The tree also looks ordinary. But yet the tree has the sap of vitality that courses through it. I have that same sap of potential which courses through me as well. Because we are not judged based simply on who we are, but we are judged on who we can become. You see, and here lies also the distinction between Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei and Rosh Hashanah of Tubishvat. See, Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei, you are judged for who you are. In fact, the Gemara Masech Rosh Hashanah says that how do you, how do you characterize the judgment of Yamim Noroim? Ba'asher Husham. We are judged for who we are. But on Tubishvat, there's another judgment. The judgment not of who we are, but the judgment of who we can become. Because very often the world looks at us through Shammai eyes. The world just sees us for who we are and what we are. Often we look at ourselves through Shammai eyes. I just see myself for who I am and what I am. And sometimes I totally forget that I possess sap that I possess the nectar of vitality, that I possess potential, that I don't have to settle for a life of mediocrity, that I don't have to settle for being ordinary, that I don't have to settle for being regular, that I don't have to settle for being just another face in the crowd, but that I could do something dynamic, amazing, and spectacular. And dear friends, you know, doing something dynamic, spectacular, and amazing doesn't mean something that's going to be like on the front page of the paper. It doesn't mean something that's necessarily going to grab headlines or something even that maybe people will never even know about. But at the end of the day, I could shake off the frost of mediocrity, tap into my internal sap, and become something incredible. This is the power of Tubishvat. This is the Rosh Hashanah Le'ilon. This is the incredible and enormous power of this day. We pass in like Basilel because man is like the moon. And there are times I look like nothing and it looks like I'm not even a parent. They can't even see me. I have the ability to regenerate. I have the ability to rebuild. I have the ability to recreate. Tu Bishvat is a yomtiv. Do you want to know why? Because it is the yomtiv of personalistic renewal. Because as the natural world begins to renew, Rosh Hashanah Le'ilan Kiya Adam Eitz Hasada. If a tree, if a tree that looks dead, a tree that looks dead, it looks dead right now, right? The, 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 the branches are barren, the leaves are off, there's no fruit. It looks dead. Yet I know it's not dead. And I know in just a little while it's going to sprout forth and be filled with incredible vegetation, incredible leaves, incredible fruit. If the tree can do that, then imagine what I could do. If the tree could regenerate, then I can certainly do so as well. And now we can bring this all back together. This is why the Shulchan Aruch says, we don't say Tachanun. I mean, nobody ever complains about not saying Tachanun. Right? But we don't, we don't say Tachanun. We don't say Tachanun ultimately on Tu Bishvat. And again, even if there's public fast days, we won't go ahead and we won't fast. Why? Because Tu Bishvat is a yamtiv, And not a yamtiv ultimately simply because you get a bag of fruit. Why is that we eat fruit on yamtiv? Of course, again, there's an agricultural aspect. 
but we eat fruit on Tubishvat because just like the fruit came from something that at some point in time looked so barren and looked more dead than alive, but yet it produced something amazing. If the tree can do that, then imagine what I can do. And so as the natural world begins to fill up, to replenish its sap, and gets ready to bring forth something magnificent, something beautiful, I have to tap into the power of this day and try to do the same as well. You know, I'll end with the Baba Rebbe Zechitadik Levracha, Rav Shlomo Habrishtam, said something very good. The Rebbe lived from 1908 to 2000. And for those, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you may be familiar with the Baba Rebbe. The Rebbe lost everything in the course of the war and came to this country with one son who survived along with him. And he rebuilt not only an incredible Hasidus, but the truth is the Baba Rebbe is responsible for much of the, we'll call it spiritual infrastructure that became part of this country after the Holocaust. He's an incredible, incredible tzaddik who suffered immeasurably, but somehow always maintained an incredible disposition, optimism about life. And the Rebbe says something amazing. I want to quote you just one line. It's a longer piece, but you can look at it on your own. He says, Harav HaKadosh Marashmi Babav Amar Pamut Siri Hatsomi Ben Chasidov Bekeisho Shala Adam La'itza So he says something amazing. He says, why is man compared to a tree? And he says, essentially, you know, if you have a tree, a sapling, and what happens, the tree, let's say, is growing a little bit crooked. I have a tree like this in my, in my front yard, where the tree, it, like, it, it grows a little bit crooked. So you know what, the, what happens if you have a tree that's growing crooked? They pull the tree back in the other direction. They pull it back, right? You attach a rope to it, you pull it back in the other direction to straighten it out. He says, Afim yas akim You see, when the tree is a sampling, even if it's growing in the wrong direction, you could pull it back in the right direction. But once the tree becomes older and becomes rigid, if the tree is bent, you can't straighten it. So the Hasidim asked the Rebbe, so, Rebbe, so now obviously you know what the Rebbe was saying, that when we're young, when we're young, so you could go ahead and straighten out your tree. But as you get older, if you allow your tree to be bent, it grows that way and it becomes immutable, it becomes unmovable, it becomes unmalleable. So they asked the Rebbe, they asked the Rebbe, he said, so how, how old, meaning until how old do you have to shape your tree? And the Rebbe said something amazing. He said, You are young, you are a sapling, as long as you allow your tree to be moved. In other words, it doesn't matter how old your tree is. It just matters if you're willing to allow your tree to be bent in a different direction. It just matters if you're willing to allow your tree to be pulled a little bit differently than maybe it's been situated beforehand. If you're willing to change, if you're willing to adapt, if you're willing to look at yourself and to look at the world a little bit differently, there's no telling what your sapling, what your personalistic sapling could grow into. So, Mirz Hashem, this coming Wednesday night and Thursday of Tuba Bishvat, hopefully we will enter into this day with a brand new appreciation. A day, of course, when we celebrate the beautiful bounty of Eretz Yisrael, and we celebrate the Hashem who has given us a beautiful land that produces fruit, that produces so many incredible things in Halavai. The skies will open up, the airport will open up, and we'll be able, Mirz Hashem, once again to travel back home. Halavai, Halavai Bukarov. But we will also remember the personalistic message of Tu Bishvat. 
that Wednesday night, Thursday, is the Rosh Hashanah Le'ilon. On Tishrei, I was judged for who I was. On Tu Bishvat, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to see what are my dreams for myself? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to become? Now you'll say, I, but I looked in the mirror and I look so ordinary, I look so regular. Look at the natural world. It also looks ordinary, regular. In fact, the natural world looks more dead than alive. Yet we know the sap, life-affirming sap, runs through all of the vegetation in the world. If there's life-affirming sap in the tree in my front yard, there is life-affirming vitality sap coursing through my veins as well. The sap of potential, the sap of growth, the sap of ability, the sap of accomplishment. And all I have to do is to find the courage to tap into it. May we be Hashem over the course of this Tu Bishvat to be able to rediscover our sap. And if our tree has been growing in the wrong direction, to find the courage to straighten it out and maybe bend it in a different direction. To stop looking at ourselves just based on our past failures or what we are right now, but to begin looking at ourselves through the prism of who we can be, what we can become, and what we can accomplish. I really thank you so much for inviting me to your community tonight to be able to share with you some words of Torah. And Halavai Meretz Hashem will be Zoha to learn in person one of these days. But Meretz is not in Florida, but Meretz Hashem together in a rebuilt Yerushalayim with the Beis Hamikdash, with the Malach Hamashir, with all of Am Yisrael to give them here, Rabbi Aminu. Amen. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much. I just again want to thank all of our sponsors, the Cansons, the Diamonds, the Schoenbruns, the Zelters, Fishwackers, Millers, Schoenbruns, and Newhoffs. And uh, thank you to Rabbi Silver very much for, for your words of inspiration. I uh, inspired my own little uh, 